Well, I'm thankful to continue our study in 1 John. If you could, open your Bibles to 1 John. I'm always struck by the providence of our readings in the Old and New Testament as it precedes this sermon, or the, 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 the preaching of God's Word. I'm always taken aback by the providence of it all. Again, hearing Peter and the spiritual warfare that he went through and scripturated for us, for our good and for our instruction. This section in 1 John, I believe, can also furnish assurance of our salvation. And it's at those moments in our spiritual warfare where we feel the lowest, when we're in those valleys, and we can even begin to question our salvation. Question, am I even a child of God? And the Lord, as we saw during the sermon on Easter with Mary Magdalene and having personal fellowship with the resurrected Christ, showed us a way that we could know that if we are in Christ, be assured of our salvation if we suffer for his namesake, if we have a desperate need for him. And I think today in 1 John, we continue to give ways that we can test ourselves to be assured that we are in Christ. So the general outline today is four-part, and it actually falls a chiastic structure. If you recall from our time in Daniel, this chiasm, this chiastic structure is uh, when you have a particular pattern uh, being followed, which is done throughout the scriptures, where you have something, in this case, something that is true, then something that is false, then something else that is false, and then something that is true. And so if you were to chart it out, true being A and false being B, you would have A, B, B, A. That's the structure of our outline today. And I think it's, in, I think it's instructive as we try to understand what the Lord is teaching us here, and we feed off of it. So, heading number one is true anointing. That's going to be verses 20 through 21 of 1 John 2. True anointing, followed by false anointing, verse 22. Followed by false religion, verse 23. Following up with true religion, verse 24 through 25. So that is the general outline. Now, if you have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 2, put your finger on verse 20 and read with me. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Well, you may have heard of someone named Simon Magus. He's also known as Simon the Sorcerer. 
or Simon the Magician. And you may be familiar with him from the book of Acts, in particular, Acts chapter 8. He was a religious figure from the first century and one who crossed paths with the apostle Peter and John as they were preaching the gospel in Samaria. You can read all about that encounter again in Acts chapter 8. But there in Samaria, before the gospel had originally been spread by the apostle Philip, we learn that also from Acts chapter 8, Simon Magus was there and he had a ministry of his own, bewitching the people of that city by way of his sorcery. They were amazed by the magic he practiced. They all believed he was someone great. In fact, they believed he was the great power of God. Interestingly, historians record that Simon Magus declared himself to be God the Father in Samaria. Then God the Son in Judea. And then the Holy Spirit in other places. As we consider what John has been teaching us about antichrists, you should see a pattern here. Some early church fathers even held that Simon Magus was the father of Gnosticism. That's the very group that John is arguing against in this epistle. The very type of threat that was in the local church in the first century. But when Philip came preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Samaria, true conversions began to spread. And the people were baptized, declaring their faith in the Lord the one true God, even Simon Magus. But that was before his encounter with Peter and John. On that day, we read in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 14, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. One thing is true. Simon Magus was a counterfeit who desired the anointing of God for selfish gain and sought to obtain it for himself by his own works. But God's true children, and this is the point of this sermon, God's true, true children have all received this gift freely. Not by their own works and will, but by the will of God and through the finished work of Christ. So, as we continue to heading number one, consider with me what this true anointing is. Verses 21, 20 through 21, read with me. 
But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. In these verses, the Apostle John is transitioning. Notice the word, but. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. But what is the natural question? Remember, John has been warning his spiritual children, those who are hearing this letter read aloud to them in the congregation, about the Antichrist, the one who was still to come at John's day. But he was also warning about the many Antichrists who had already come. Remember, John has just finished saying they went out from us to show that they were never truly of us. Those that went out, those persecutors and precursors to the man of sin were the ones. In contrast, when John says, but you, when he says such, he's saying such to his beloved to whom he is writing. Those who went out were those who denied the fundamental truths concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of glory. So, what is this contrast of John communicating? The answer is kind of ironic. John makes a deep theological point here, wrapped up in a wordplay concerning the Greek translation of Messiah, which is known as Christos. This is where we get the familiar Anglicanized word, Christ. But what does the word Christ mean? Simply put, the word Christos, or Christ, means anointed. But the contrast here is not necessarily between the many antichrists who had already come in John's day and who had left the congregation, and Jesus Christ, the anointed one, no, that's not John's point. Rather, it's between the many Antichrist and Jesus' body, the church. This is what John means when he says, but you. In other words, John could have said, church, I am speaking about you. These false teachers, these Antichrists, these anti-anointed ones, in fact, are not the anointed ones. You have the real anointing. You have been anointed. And not only that, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. So this begs the question, what is this anointing? And who is the Holy One specifically who is anointing us? So as we consider what this anointing is, turn with me to Exodus chapter 28 because I think we have a picture of it beginning in the Old Testament. All the way back in the book of Exodus, we see an early illustration of anointing. The context is that the children of Israel are in the wilderness after fleeing from their 400-year Egyptian captivity. From Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, Moses has already received the Ten Commandments from the finger of God upon Mount Sinai, and he delivered subsequent laws citing or setting the Israelites apart as a peculiar nation in the wilderness. 
bound by covenant to the God of heaven and earth. And now after giving instructions for the creation of the tabernacle and the holy items to attend its construction, like the Ark of the Covenant, the golden lampstand, the table for showbread, and so forth, Moses now instructs this in verse 1 of chapter 28. He says this, Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abahu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my spirit. You should have underlined at least in your minds in your Bible whom I have filled with a spirit of skill. See, God was blessing these men to serve him, and he gave them what they needed to do so. These priestly garments were to be made according to the pattern that would follow, but notice these verses describe the Lord filling the sons of Aaron, a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. And this idea of spirit and consecration, this being set apart, is all related to the idea of anointing. Skip down to verse 41. We'll see it explicitly. After all the priestly attire was made, after these men were filled with a spirit of skill, it says this, And you shall put them on Aaron your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. This is an early reference of anointing that I think strikes at the foundational level of what we are to understand by anointing. We see it all through the Old Testament. We see priests and prophets and kings being anointed. One author writes, kings, priests, prophets received their consecration to the office appointed by them, or, I'm sorry, appointed by God through an anointing. The symbol of the power imparted to them by God through his spirit for the fulfillment of their calling. So in other words, this outward and visible act of anointing with oil that we see in the Old Testament pictured something that was inward and invisible. The spiritual work of consecration, setting apart by the Holy Spirit for a holy purpose. And so we have the New Testament, Jesus, the Anointed One, the Christ. If we see the relationship between anointing with oil and what it symbolized, an inward reality of being filled with the Holy Spirit, what we see is that that outward expression of anointing with oil pictured something deep. Jesus was anointed, not per se with oil, but with the Holy Spirit. At his baptism, when the heavens opened up and the voice of God declared, This is my beloved Son. He was given the Spirit without measure. We can do a whole study on the anointing of Christ and the relationship between the Son and the Spirit. 
Because we also read in Acts that he received the Spirit again when he ascended into heaven. Christ has the Spirit par excellence in its fullness. It was the Holy Spirit working in and through our Lord and Savior in his earthly ministry. But we, being members of his body, being in union with Christ, have an anointing. We are a kingdom of priests, Peter would say. The very thing that was promised in the Old Testament to the children of Israel, that they would be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, brothers and sisters, that promise was looking forward to the body of Christ. That is us, Peter would say. Peter does say. And John is saying it explicitly here. You have an anointing. You have been anointed. And to show the union of this anointing with Christ, John goes on to say that this anointing was given by Christ. He's the one who has anointed you. Remember in our sermon when we talked about Mary Magdalene and the whole point of don't touch me, I haven't ascended yet to my father. And the point was made that what Jesus was saying to Mary is if you can wait 40 days, I'll ascend to heaven and I will embrace you, Mary. And that embracing took place at Pentecost when the Lord Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit to his church. He did so at Pentecost. <laughs> Remember, the church was tarrying in Jerusalem and would not do anything until they received that anointing. In fact, Jesus said to do that. He commanded them to do that. And brothers and sisters, even Jesus himself waited until he was anointed before his earthly ministry began. And so if we have this anointing, how then should we live? And I kind of let the cat out of the bag when it comes to identifying who this Holy One is who's, who's anointed us. Because throughout the whole Old Testament, God is referred to as the Holy One of Israel. See 2 Kings 19.22 or Job 6 or Psalm 71. The prophet Isaiah speaks of God as the Holy One about 30 times. But that which was clear in the Old Testament, for the purpose that it was given, becomes even more clear in the New Testament. And I believe here with John's use, where he says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. Follow with me in remembering the New Testament, where Jesus is referred to as the Holy One of God. Mark 1.24 and Luke 4.34. Now, both those times, it's demons who are identifying Jesus as the Holy One. We know who you are. You're Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One. Lest we think we're taking this on the testimony of demons, as it pertains specifically to the Apostle John and his writings, consider his gospel which preceded this epistle that we're reading today. And there John records a confession made by all the apostles after many who followed Jesus began to abandon him. Their love grew cold, and they all turned and abandoned him, except for the apostles. 
And there John writes that Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The very thing John's saying is the promise here attached in 1 John. You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John would go on to refer to Jesus as the Holy One in the book of Revelation too. And so Jesus, I believe, is the context of 1 John here. When he says you have this anointing from the Holy One, it's from Christ. And yes, it was sent by Christ at Pentecost. But the Holy Spirit is being sent to indwell believers today. This wasn't a one-time act. Pentecost was a one-time act. But children of God are being called even today. And so, brothers and sisters, if you are in Jesus, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ then you have an anointing. You have received the Holy Spirit. You have been set apart and are called a saint for a holy purpose. What is that holy purpose? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You're not only a Christian, which means that you belong to the Anointed One. You are His slaves because you were purchased by Him. But you have an anointing yourself. This can be said of every Christian. Can it be said of you? And this is what I think John is saying. If this can be said of you, and you consider the source of this anointing, brothers and sisters, that's assurance. There are many who claim to be anointed ones. Followers of the anointed one. Christians. Followers of Christ. Who are not. These are the Antichrists who oppose the true Christ. They have no such anointing. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They do not walk by the Spirit. They do not belong to Christ. They are imposters. And John has spoken of them already. And he continues to expose them, teaching us, remember, how to identify them. That's in the previous context of this whole epistle. John is teaching us how to identify these false Christs, these antichrists. And I think he does so in the next verse. Look with me at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Those who claim to be anointed are exposed by their denial of the truth. These have neither the Son nor the Father. The Apostle John has already made some other contrast in this epistle, if you remember, between light and darkness. That was in chapter 1. Love and hate. That was in the previous part of chapter 2. And now he contrasts those in Christ who are of the truth, those who know the truth, with those who seem to be of the truth, but are in fact liars. 
The immediate context concerns those who were once in the church. church. They were once of us, as John said in the previous verse, but now have gone out from us. These are the ones who were teaching of another Jesus, another gospel, another form of Christian living. And these, John says, are not just denying Jesus, the Son, the Christ, but they're also denying the Father by doing so. Whether they, whether they intend to or not, it's impossible to worship the Father and not worship the Son. We're going to continue to unpack that. But interestingly, this truth could also have application to the Jewish believers that John is shepherding. We know that John is speaking to Jews and Gentiles in the region of Ephesus. That's who he was shepherding. Those were his spiritual children. And certainly by now, the division in Jewish families was not a new thing. Those Jews who believe in Jesus, who believe he is the long-awaited Messiah, he is the Christ, they've suffered persecution in their own families for advocating Christ. This starts to make some connections in our thinking when we consider Jesus saying, unless you love me more than your father or your mother. There were family breakdowns that took place in the first century because of a confession of Christ. There are those brothers and sisters that we have today in other countries, especially, that still receive persecution by their own blood family if they name the name of Christ. There is a price to pay for following Christ. And I think here, John's words might hit close to home for the Jewish audience that heard these words. And so John continues in verse 23 where he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. If it wasn't clear before, if it wasn't clear that you're a liar if you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, and that it, everyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist, if that wasn't clear enough, John says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I believe what was implicit in the previous verse, in verse 23, now becomes explicit. When John says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, I believe he means no one. Period. In John's day, that could mean the docetic, remember? Those are the ones who said Jesus didn't have a physical body. Or the proto-gnostic who denied that the Messiah, the Christ, was the same as the man, Jesus. They divide the, the hypostatic union that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And as we've just discussed, this even applied to those who claimed that they worshipped Yahweh, the Old Testament God, the God of the Old and New Testament, the covenant God of Israel, and yet denied Jesus. No, John is clear. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
But conversely, John is equally clear following up. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It did not matter if you used to be a docetic. It did not matter if you used to be a protognostic. It did not matter if you used to be a Jew according to the flesh only, who formerly went to house, to house, rounding up Christians and approved of their persecution and their execution and their death. I think you know who I'm talking about. Didn't matter if you confess the Son, if they now confess the Son, you have the Father also. For as much as false religion is illustrated by denying Jesus, the beating heart of true religion is that which confesses the true Christ, the true gospel. You may have heard of Irenaeus, the early church father, renowned from the first century, who was among those who combated false teachers that warred against the church, her truth, and her Lord. He fought the enemy and engaged in the same spiritual warfare that the Apostle John was fighting in his ministry. In fact, it is recorded in the annals of history that Irenaeus was the student of someone named Polycarp, who was himself the student of the Apostle John. So Irenaeus is not many degrees removed from the Apostle John. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a moment where you hold your Bible a little more tightly in your hands because I believe Irenaeus had the same epistle of 1 John that you have today in your hands. And it comes to this, he comes to the same exegetical conclusion that we're coming to this morning. Speaking of those who reject the Son, he maintains the truth of the Scriptures, which testify against such impostors who claim to be of the truth, Speaking of the scriptures, the sole infallible rule of our faith, Irenaeus writes this. And listen for this section in 1 John that we're studying this morning. Irenaeus writes this. These, that is the scriptures, have all declared to us that there is one God, creator of heaven and earth, announced by the law and the prophets, and one Christ, the Son of God. If anyone does not agree to these truths, he despises the companions of the Lord. Nay, more, he despises Christ himself, the Lord. Yes, he despises the Father also and stands self-condemned, resisting and opposing his own salvation. And this is the case with all heretics, Irenaeus says. And so as we remember the reading from the New Testament this morning with Peter and the spiritual warfare that he was experiencing. Brothers and sisters, we are in the midst of spiritual warfare in this world every day. There are many groups, cults, and schisms that name the name of Christ and yet do not truly know him. There are many who claim to know God, even the God of the Bible, and yet reject Jesus as the Son of God. And by this they evidence that they don't have the Father whom they confess either. There was a debate not that long ago about whether Christians worship the same God as those in Islam. 
because there's a theological connection with Islam, just as there's a theological connection with Judaism. Islam cites Abraham as their spiritual father. Obviously, the Jews cite the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what do both of these groups have in common? They deny the son. It's a sad state of affairs that there are many Christians who would unite with, with Muslims or Jews on that level that they seemingly worship the Father. Even worse, you might think of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christian scientists. All of these groups have something in common, and we've talked about it in previous sermons. <laughs> they were all founded by those who were once in the church and left the church, do you hear something there from 1 John? And they all deny the true Christ. And so we dare not, in our sharing of the gospel, come across such and try to find a common ground with them there. It could be a springboard into evangelizing them and to sharing the gospel, but brothers and sisters, there are some Christians who wouldn't call a Jew to repent. There are some Christians who wouldn't necessarily call a Muslim to repent, or a Jehovah's Witness, or a Mormon, or fit into that category any schism or cult you want. That ought not to be us. We are called to present the true Christ. And this is wherein lies our assurance of salvation. Amidst all of this spiritual warfare, brothers and sisters, God tells us through the Apostle John that we can know that we have eternal life. And he shepherds us all into how this could be so. Look with me at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. The Apostle John has been building up to this point, this exhortation which would be like balm to the soul of his hearers. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. In other words, what John is saying is, this, is, this isn't new. Christianity is not a, a new religion per se, especially to the Jews the children of Abraham according to the flesh. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Following Jesus, being followers of the way, as the book of Acts calls it, being Christians, followers of Christ, did not make you a member of a new religion. You were part of an old religion, the oldest, from the beginning, to our first parents, Adam and Eve who believed in Christ and were saved. Salvation through faith in Christ was not new, was not foreign to the Jew, despite what other unbelieving Jews may have been saying, Sadducees, scribes, Pharisees, unbelieving family members. Rather, every natural-born child of Abraham who had ever been saved, including Abraham, had faith in Christ. They weren't saved any other way. They weren't saved by their obedience to the Mosaic law. They were afforded blessings 
in the land of Canaan by their obedience to the Mosaic law, but they weren't afforded eternal life. That has only ever come through Christ. And John says that believing in Christ, abiding in the truth, abiding in the Son and in the Father, has a promise attached to it. And it's a promise that was made to us, those who believe, those who belong to Christ. And again, just like I don't believe that the religion is new, I don't believe that this promise is new. It would be disjointed to think that what was heard was old, but the promise attached to it now is new. No, rather I believe that this is a package deal of sorts. What they heard was the gospel. The person and the work of Christ contained in the Old Testament and now being proclaimed by the apostolic witness in the New Covenant Church. And promise the promise of eternal life has always been attached to those who believed the message of the gospel. It made no difference if you were preached the gospel through types and shadows in the Old Covenant or whether you were now hearing of the fulfillment of these types and shadows by the apostles, it was all the voice of Christ. And he said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So, here are the two things I want you to consider. First, the apostolic witness of Christ, of the gospel, is enough. It's enough. The Gnostics, that was their whole game. Their whole game was competing with the apostles and oftentimes trying to say that they're on the apostles' side and saying, look, I have something to tell you about Christ that isn't from John, that isn't from Peter. You're the same from the cults today. I have something to tell you about Christ that you aren't quite understanding from your Bible because it hasn't really been interpreted correctly. And we have a teacher who's, who's had visions, who has spoken to God directly. And he's told us more about Jesus and you need to know about this or else you won't be saved. No. The apostolic testimony is enough. And where is the only place that we have the apostolic testimony? Where is the only place that we can learn what they infallibly taught by the power of the Holy Spirit? The scriptures. This is why we're Protestants, brothers and sisters. We believe in sola scriptura. The scriptures are enough. They're the sole infallible rule of faith and practice. And secondly, do you confess Christ? Not just any Christ, but the true Christ of the scriptures. If you do, rejoice, for you are blessed. Because as Peter said, actually Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this, but the Father who is in heaven. Everybody who holds the true Christ has been given the ability to do so by the Father. And this is why if you don't confess the true Christ, you don't have the Father also. 
The Apostle Peter commanded, Brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. 2 Peter 1.10. And we can do so. You can know that you have eternal life. That you possess the promise of eternal life. There are other cults. Roman Catholicism is one of them, which would say you can't know if you have eternal life. Brothers and sisters, it's a Protestant doctrine to have assurance of your salvation. Consider Peter is saying, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. The Roman Catholic says, you can't do what Peter just told you to do. You can know that you have eternal life. And Jesus said this. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here again we have this idea of knowing. John has said it repeatedly. You know the truth. Anyone who says they know the truth and doesn't confess the true Christ is a liar. And Jesus is saying this is eternal life. That they know you. Why such a weight on this knowing? We've said it before. We'll say it again. This is the blessing that was prophesied in the Old Covenant about the New Covenant. Remember Jeremiah? No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, this is, an, this is another example of where we would disagree even with our Presbyterian brothers who would argue that in the congregation, in the covenant community, are unbelieving children. They would argue that the new covenant is like the old covenant. But Jeremiah says that the new covenant is not like the old covenant. Under what respects? The respect that everybody in the new covenant knows the Lord. In conclusion, if you remember with me what we learned on Easter from John's gospel, that if you have personal fellowship with the resurrected Christ, evidenced by a desperate need of him, as you live this life of continual suffering for the name of Christ, you can have the blessed assurance of your salvation. And now, by way of John's epistle, we can add another, that if you confess the true Christ and not a counterfeit Christ, if you confess the true gospel and not a counterfeit gospel, and if you remain among the true church and not a counterfeit church, at least there you can have assurance of your salvation. Not that you can't be in the true church and a member of a cult. There are many brothers and sisters who are in these cults who should come out of these cults. The brothers and sisters, they can't have the assurance that we have because they're part of a group which doesn't confess the Son. Our hearts should break for those who are in those groups. But if this is you, that you confess the true Christ, the true gospel, John says that you have an anointing, an anointing from the Holy One, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we are taken aback by your graciousness, Lord, that you have
provided us in and through your word by the work of the Spirit in our lives, the ability to discern truth from error, the ability to desire to discern truth from error. Lord, your children are the ones who want to honor you in all things, especially as we honor the Son, as we honor you, Father. I pray that through this message and through the message of John, the truth of this anointing and who it comes from, your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that that would set our hearts on fire, knowing who we are anointed by and for what purpose to worship you, to glorify you, and to enjoy you forever. Oh, Lord, use us in this fallen world by Christ to build your kingdom as Christ builds his kingdom through your people, the people that you have gifted to your son. Oh, Lord, create in us a heart that longs to see the coming of our Lord and Savior that we may be done with this fallen world and this spiritual warfare that we encounter day in and day out. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.